This is Josh Molden, and this is the Theology Matters podcast. This is a special series on CTI member books. And in this first episode, I'm talking to theologian Douglas Otati, who has recently published a theology for for the 21st century. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. Well, this is, Doug, an amazing uh, production that you've put together here. This is a book that is some almost 800 pages long. So my first question was just how long have you been working on this? A really long time. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, Josh, I, 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 start, I worked on this at two different institutions. I worked on it while I was teaching at Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, and then moved down here to uh, Davidson College. So I would say I probably started fiddling with how to put together a systematic theology. I probably started that around the year um, 2000, 2002, something like that. But, uh, you know, it took a little while to get it to the point where there was really anything at all there, a few monographs, a few other sorts of things to do. Um, So I've been working on it a long time. It, it, It occurred to me, once I finished the whole thing up and I looked at it, it occurred to me that that I may have had something like this in mind for a long time. That is a, a in another another millennium uh, where where they hardly had running water. When I went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I remember um, being assigned Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr and people like that who were writing theological statements and. I really thought that that was sort of like the creme de la creme of what I was looking at to some extent and degree with Van Harvey and uh, uh, Robert Evans and a number of people in that department, Claude Welsh. Uh, and uh, so I think I've admired that stuff uh, from a long, long time ago. Uh, I don't think I set, set out to write something like that. But in any case, a, a long time writing on this particular project and in different institutions, yeah. Let's just say the book is published by Erdman's Publishing Company, and it came out in this 2020. You speak a bit about systematic theology. You use the term systematics, uh, and I'm interested to hear what you think of, of you know, of what the, the purpose of systematic theology is, and just noting that this is a one-volume systematic theology. Sometimes people have systematic theologies that, that are stretched out into multi-volumes, but this is a, you know, a, very, a very thick one-volume uh, systematics. Well, yeah, one thing is that that was projected at one time to be a two-volume systematic, but they could do it in one, and I think Erdman's preferred that, Uh, and actually, once they described it to me, so did I, because they could put in certain features, like they could put in lists of propositions and things of that sort that would make it easier to refer to. the systematic theology, you know, I, I, some years ago, people would have would have opposed that to dogmatics or to some other forms of writing theologies. I think that's really the, 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 the opposition between or the juxtaposition between systematics and dogmatics. I think that's really a period piece, and it comes out of some debates earlier in the 20th century uh, with Karl Barth and Paul Tillich and people like that, and people would regard Tillich systematic as a representative of what's a system, and they regard Barth as a dogmatics, and, and so on and so forth. I actually think that that's a nice and interesting debate, uh, but I don't really, um, I don't really take the meaning of systematics from that debate. 
I think one way to look at it is to, is to ask about different forms of theological literature and how it is they are supposed to illumine things. How is it that they're supposed to be helpful? So let's take a sermon, right? I mean, a sermon is supposed to talk about some particular texts, if you're lucky, uh, and go to church someplace where they do that, and relate that to a way of living and to certain questions of faith and piety and also ethics and so forth at a particular place and time. So someone preaches a sermon, they preach it with respect to a text, but they preach it to particular people to try and illumine these things for particular people. And it's part of a series, of course, because they preach on a regular basis. Um, it's an interesting form of theological literature because there are a number of variables. I, you could have the same text being preached on in different churches in the same city, and they might be preached into somewhat different contexts, and there's, it's pretty clear they wouldn't be the same sermon, not to mention if you preach on the same text in different locations, different times, things of that sort. But so a sermon is an attempt to teach. It's an attempt to exposit uh, faith and, 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 and help support it promote it and extend it in a particular congregation with respect to particular texts. And, and it's a perfectly fine mode of literature. Uh, exegetical studies and commentaries uh, are somewhat similar. That is, they go to particular biblical texts, sometimes very defined, sometimes more extended, entire books, and they try and talk about what's going on there and what the meaning is of the sorts of things that are being said there, the background and uh, of, of the text and the persons who wrote it and things of that sort. There are theological monographs that are about particular doctrines. You know, you can, you mm -hmm. uh, Gustav, uh, uh, Alain's Christus, Christus Victor, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about atonement theories. And atonement's a pretty big deal, but it is a monograph and it tries to shoot choose particular expressions of that uh, through the ages. So you can do that, or you could have a monograph that was really just about doctrine of sin or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are studies of specific figures. You know, uh, people, uh, a theology, uh, someone can write a book on the theology of John Calvin, things of that sort. These are also illuminating. Now, what a systematic theology tries to do is it tries to illumine Christian believing by asking about interconnections between beliefs and commitments and loyalties. Hmm. That's what it, and, and concepts and symbols. So really the, the sort of key thing is to try and keep the things in mind in interconnection. Hmm. Uh, in that way, suppose we talk about something like creation and sin or something of those along those lines, a systematic should help you to understand that Creation is good, but if you emphasize the goodness of creation or state it in certain ways, you may lose the opportunity to talk about corruption of life and so forth. How do they relate? Mm -hmm. If you ride the horse of radical sin too far into the night, have you jettisoned good creation? I mean, these are the sorts of questions that are of some importance in systematics. Uh, and, and, and there are other sort of related questions. So systematic theology is a form of theological literature, I think, that tries to illumine by underscoring or paying attention to interconnections. It tries to relate those interconnections and, and these, this believing as a whole to a kind of stance in life, I think, 
or to a kind of faithfulness. And if you look at it that way, Calvin's Institutes counts as systematic theology, even though it's probably not as systematic as some other presentations in the world. Schleiermacher's uh, The Christian Faith, which of course Glaubenslera is his form there, uh, counts as well. So I would use systematic theology more or less like uh, faith teaching and trying to illumine by, by, by underscoring interconnections. Very helpful and interesting. I'm, uh, and I was thinking something along the same lines. The, you know, one of the things about systematic theology is the attempt to, it's a pretty comprehensive account. Of course, there's also always new questions one can ask, but it does mm -hmm. try to, to answer a lot of questions that, that arise in the Christian faith or, or another faith. It does. And, and, and one of the reasons it has to do that is because if it's going to illumine um, in terms of the sinews and the interconnections. Maybe they're organic interconnections. One doesn't have to think of them as mathematical. But if one's going to do that, you know, you really don't want to leave major things out. Uh, you, you have to, the, the bias is in favor of inclusion. Is it possible for a systematic theology at points to try and be illustrative rather than entirely comprehensive in the way it proceeds. I think that is possible. And I think uh, um, at certain points I try to do that. Um, I think that there have been people who have written with the assumption that you can't do that. And, and uh, for instance, uh, when Carl Rahner wrote uh, his book, The Christian Faith, he called it a first order of theological reflection rather than a systematic. I think what he had in mind for systematics was basically uh, Thomas's Summa, which of course never gets finished because of, because of how comprehensive it's trying to be, among other things. And so he wanted to say, well, you couldn't really write one of those any longer because uh, there were too many sub-disciplines and all this stuff. Like you had to have you know everything to do it. And I think that um, that may be true, although what he thought of as a first order of reflection, if you dress it up a little bit and throw in a few more doctrines and a couple other things, comes pretty close to the way systematics functions in some other context. I don't think, for example, that Amor Brunner's dogmatics, which I regard as a systematic and broadly defined, I don't think that that thing touches literally everything. It touches a lot of things. And you could probably project on the basis of what it does do what he might say about other things or what a Brunner-like thinker might say about things that Brunner never confronted. I think that's all, all, all together possible. So I think you're right. There is a bias toward a kind of comprehensiveness. It may not literally have to include every last thing, but the bias is toward that because otherwise you'll miss the interconnections and practically speaking, since I'm just an old pragmatist anyway, will miss the connection with a form of life, mm. uh, which needs to be kind of understood as a whole, as a coherent thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in kind of a question regarding who you see as the audience, and perhaps the title of the book is also helpful, a theology specifically for the 21st century, but maybe even as a more narrow way to get into that question, is there a sense in which writing this book, it, did it change when you were no longer teaching at a, at a seminary, but were teaching at a liberal arts college at Davidson College, where you are now? So this is an interesting thing. Uh, um, I, I, when I got to Union Seminary in Richmond, one of the things that occurred to me, it took a little while, but not too long, really, uh, was that it was not the University of Chicago Divinity School with a bunch of PhD candidates. We had some PhD candidates. They were in the PhD program. It was smaller. But 
the, the basic lectures that you would do in systematics there were to people who were studying for master of divinity degrees. Um, now, I think probably we thought one of the nice features of that school once upon a time was that it had a comparatively eggheady uh, a master of divinity program, and it had then a PhD program that thought that being connected with the church was a good thing. So that positioned it a certain way. But um, so I think I learned there that a systematic theology is not simply written for other PhDs. Uh, that, that, that would be a mistake. And in fact, I think if one looks at the development of systematics in the church over time, that's the case. If we look at Origins uh, De Principis, for example, it's written for the catechetical school in Alexandria, and it says, here are questions that people are raising, and let's try and go through these things. So he's talking to people who are going to be in leadership positions in the church, but by no means simply ordained leadership, and, and, and certainly not uh, other people always that are that are working at that uh, on that stuff the same way he is. So I think that systematics has had a place in church teaching, you know, uh, that, that's related to catechesis to some extent degree and some other things. All of which is to say, as far as I'm concerned, and then, then I, I moved, moved to, to uh, Davidson College, now you have people in Davidson College who are pretty bright students. They're not as focused as they would be at a seminary. Uh, and uh, I, I learn also, finally, that people in the other departments of the seminary, no matter how cantankerous I might get, were doing me something of a favor because they're giving people backgrounds in biblical things and uh, church historical things and things of that sort that can be drawn on in a systematics class. Now here, that's not the case, right? And here my students are not in a theological curriculum per se, and they don't have that. So I learned while I'm doing classes here that if you wanna talk, if you've got uh, theological points that relate to a biblical background, you better talk a little bit about the Bible because you can't really assume that people have got that. In any case, long story short, uh, I think maybe I have tried to combine these um, sorts of uh, uh, life situations and I think I would do it again if I had the chance. Uh, that is, it seems to me that a systematics ought to be intellectually rigorous, but it ought to be accessible to the leadership of the church and to, and to other persons who are interested in theological questions, and at least it may have to be people of some education. But they shouldn't be simply technical monographs. And a systematics should not be the same thing as a highly technical piece of literature. Um, there are some really wonderful things that have been written, for example, on natural theology and in, in Bart and Brunner and that debate. And, and I think uh, uh, Willis at Princeton wrote some very interesting things like that. Those are monographs. And if you pick those things up and look at them, if you don't have training, a, lot, a fair amount of training tells you're not gonna know what's going on. That's okay, I mean, that's perfectly fine but I don't think a systematic theology should be that way. Mm. Systematic theology should have a kind of range in its audience. Now, also having said that, you could easily underestimate how wide an audience it's gonna be. Uh, I think my, my book probably really for seminary classes um, and uh, some undergraduate classes, if they wanna look at this kind of stuff and they have someone to read it with, uh, and, and, and then also for other people who have PhDs and are specialists in the field. So that would be the sort of audience I would have in mind. But then the core audience, 
a little bit like Schleiermacher. The core, core audience is the leadership of the church, so long as you're still allowed to include in the leadership of the church a bunch of PhDs and teachers and everything. They certainly thought you should, and Calvin thought you should, and I think you should. So that's well, what I would Well said. Uh, maybe a couple more questions. One is just maybe speak a bit about the, what you see as the role of science and, and theology. This comes up, you know, throughout the book. And I'm also aware, of course, uh, that you were at CTI during a program uh, inquiry we had on, on astrobiology and, and religion and the social implications of astrobiology. And you were working on this book during that, during that inquiry, which you were involved in. So maybe just say a bit about where you see science and theology intersecting and how that influences this, this project. Well, let me say first, uh, what a delightful experience it was for me to be at CTI. I enjoyed it. Part of the reason it was delightful is that you were hanging around. Uh, uh, there are a lot of other nice people hanging around. I also liked it because I could go to an Italian deli and sit there and get some Italian food and also sit there and get a, an espresso and sit outside and talk to people about stuff. Shout out to D'Angelo's. D'Angelo's. Well, what a great place. And uh, I really, really enjoyed being up there. And I got a lot of work done. And of course, the fundamental reason why I got a, a lot of work done was enjoyable. It was the way that CTI is set up to allow people to work on uh, in, in a nice environment on what it is that they're, they're working on it. So I, I really appreciate that. And I have a great debt of gratitude to everybody up there. Um, let me say in terms of the science and theology stuff, yeah, I think that it is um, something that comes up at a lot of points in, in my work. And one reason this is the case is that I'm trying to write what I think of as a liberal theology, and that is one that wants to be uh, in conversation with free thinking, as it were. It wants to talk about other disciplines, wants to be in conversation with philosophy, things of that sort. So there is that kind of strand in theology. And you ride into the modern period and everyone gets so excited about this question that this question sometimes divides different theological camps. So you're going to be modernist or you're going to be fundamentalist or something like that. And if it comes to that, and I hope it doesn't always come to that, but if it comes to that, I would be on the modernist end of that divide. But I think there are all sorts of very valid critiques made a number of the number of the moderates. More fundamentally, I think, than that, the other thing that I think is true is that there is a kind of doctrinal authorization, a confessional theological authorization for attention to the sciences and what the sciences are talking about. Now, that is the case because of a theological understanding of God and world. And to be very simple about it, but I think importantly simple about it, or appropriately simple about it, uh, this is God's world. So if you want to blame somebody for the way the whole world is set up, well, you know, you have to worry about sin and so forth. But one of your best candidates for that is God, right? I mean, that, that is, it's God's world more so than it's mine or, or, or any other particular group's world. Uh, and there are possibilities and limits there. But that particular move, that it's God's world because God is creator, because God governs, because God has to do with the telos of the world and redemption, things of that sort. That basic move, which is really fundamental to my brand of Protestantism, which is Reformed and Presbyterian and somewhat Calvinist, that move is a big move. And it means that in principle, anything that you know 
about how the world is set up is at least potentially relevant for your theology and how you understand God. So it must be that finally, I don't know, in the mind of God or something, that all of this stuff works out and coheres. That doesn't mean Otadi's going to figure it out. That just means, you know, potentially, if we wanted to be Thomistic about it, in the mind of God, this all works out somehow. Truth is truth. So that's one of the big things. And if you go with that, you get John Calvin claiming that, you know, the arts and sciences are good gifts of God and that you should respect the truth wherever it may be found because God is source of all truth. I'm for him on that. It doesn't mean you always get it right. And it doesn't mean other people have always got it right. Or if you go with Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards is going to say that natural philosophy is the study of the manner of God's acting in the world. And the, the, the base... The base, the, the, the spine of that observation has to do with a theological spine. It's God's world. That's what he knows. So when Edwards is writing about spiders and telling you that they that they can they they're lo they can uh, locomote on the on 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 on, on these on these uh, spires of things and it looks so great, he thinks this is God making provision for spiders to get around. You know, so spiders don't have buses, planes, trains, and automobiles, but boy, they got webs and they. Can and they can ride these things around like that. And then he says that not only is God giving them a way to get around, but he's giving them a way to recreate. He thinks they're enjoying themselves. Now, it, uh, the guy, is, he's looking at spiders. He likes spiders. He can live a lot of times. But when he looks at a spider, what does Jonathan Edwards think he sees when he sees a spider? He thinks he sees a creature of God in God's world locomoting and getting around in a way that reflects the wisdom and the activity of God. Now there, that's a good reason to care about the sciences. Now we've got a problem that's gonna come up, which is not everybody who's a scientist, any more than anyone who's a theologian, tells you stuff that works out. So you're going to have questions of having to be critical on this and all this. And at a certain point, after you've done some of your work, you're gonna to have to pay your money and take your chance on a guess or a move. But that you're in, that you're willing to take those risks, that is to relate theology to the science and these other things, is really fundamental theology. If you've got a theological program and it wants to dismiss all what scientists say about the world, there are, there's only one or two things that can be going on here. One is they don't really have a doctrine of God in relation to the world to begin with, which is my deep suspicion about num a number of them. But the other is they've got a kind of peculiar doctrine of sin where sin screws up everything that everyone thinks about anything as long as they're a scientist and they're a general world, but somehow allows exegesis to go ahead in an untroubled way or something so you can understand the Bible. You've got that as a possibility too. But I think those two ways of going about it are not pretty, and they've got problems, in, in at least in a Reformed theology land. So yeah, I think there are big reasons to pay attention to the sciences. When you say also then, so there, and there are theological premises for, for why science counts. Now, that you need to try and undertake and understand this stuff critically. It, you can't simply assume everything that you're reading is so. And the other thing is the sciences change and alter over time. Of course, you know, before someone gets too excited about that, and, and at a certain point, I've, I've met some theologians who get very excited about that. Uh, well, how can it be very helpful if it changes over time? Well, I don't want to sound bad here, but, you know, theology does too, and exegesis does too. So if you want to throw them all away, go ahead. I think what you do is you pay your money and take your chance here. Now, I do that 
understanding that finally it's not the correctness of my theology or my estimate of the sciences that's fundamentally at issue in a Christian life. It is grace. And that's a lucky thing because otherwise, you know, our standing in relationship to God would be dependent upon how correct our theologies are. And I think down that road is a lot of trouble. Mm. So with respect to astrobiology, which was in fact the, the chief topic while I was at CTI, and there, there were so many wonderful people to work with uh, on that topic too. Uh, I think astrobiology really, which wants to talk about the story of life in the cosmos more or less. Uh, and of course, it, uh, and, and it's gonna lead up to planet Earth since that's the one place where we know we've got it. One of the great things about that is that it puts life on earth and your life and my life and other things into a vastly expansive context. And that is very, very helpful. It means on the one hand that you are related to all sorts of things. Uh, you know that Joni Mitchell was not entirely wrong when she wrote the line, we are stardust for, uh, for her, her song by the time we got to Woodstock. She actually turns out to be correct. And, that, 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 and the astrobiologists will, will go ahead and say that. That's pretty impressive. So when you're hanging around in God's world here, uh, you are related to stardust. That's, uh, you know, a, a very interesting thing. It also means that you're going to be dwarfed part of the time. It's a very large cosmos. And the history of life is, even if it only ends up being on this planet, considerably longer than just what concerns human beings. I mean, we got dinosaurs. We've got all kinds of microbial life and everything else. It's a big deal. The other thing I think is so, so you'd be displaced. That's not tragic from the point of view of a reformed theologian because the, the idea is that the chief end of the human being is not simply the human being, but to glorify God and enjoy God forever. So we, we never were the chief point of the whole thing in reformed theology land. Uh, maybe some other brands of the theology have that problem, but reformed theology really shouldn't, I don't think. Uh, so uh, we, have, we have that kind of thing. But the other big, big thing here is that the, the astrobiologist can tell you that human life in, and life at, in, at large, not just human life, is radically embedded in its planetary habitat. And what that's going to mean is that you can't think in ter Darwinian terms simply of a steady state environment and organisms changing to adapt to an inert environment, but in fact, the changes are going both ways. And this is because the organisms inevitably alter the environment and then the environment has an effect upon organisms and there you go. Uh, one of the illustrations used in the seminar when I was up there and, the, and that, that Rosenzweig was quite articulate about and a number of other people were, was that the, the air that you and I breathe depends on a certain chemical composition that's simply not possible apart from the gases released. Uh, by my, microbes and so forth for billions of years. So if life doesn't alter the, envir the environment on the planet, you and I are out. Uh, that's also pretty impressive. So then let's suppose we go to some big, big questions. One, what does it mean to be a good creature? <clears throat> How are you related to creation at large? How is it good? These things are going to be impacted by ideas like this. Suppose we go to other sort of more practical questions about environmental degradation and, and, and ecologies and so forth. Those will be incredibly important questions. They're going to be related to many uh, theological points, creation, human agency, uh, direction of things and so forth, justice and the works. 
But one, the, it would be the case that one thing that will not be available to us is the idea that um, you should somehow leave the environment untouched as steady state. That, that, that the, it, can't, it cannot be that the terminus or the goal of ecological thinking and environmental thinking is to have the environment left alone or left intact. That's simply not possible. It's not possible for microbes or for other things. We need to think about an environment in such a way that we are participants in the environment and then ask what a kind of faithful and appropriate participation is. That's a little bit different than asking whether or not you can leave it alone and never ruin it. Uh, so I think the astrobiology is really, really important and that it accords also with some important theological ideas. Now, it doesn't simply accord with them. It kind of pushes you a little bit, right? I mean, in the case that someone wanted to have a theology that was so focused on the human in and apart from other things that it could simply say, and say, well, you know, history is different from nature. That was a line a long time, a lot of times in neo-Orthodox and other theologies that meant that human history is completely different than evolutionary history, or, or maybe they didn't even think that there was a history in, in, in nature, though I think they probably knew that. Uh, really, that, that uh, way of going about things where you completely separate off human history from the rest of creation and say, well, you know, the God of the Bible has mostly to do with history rather than nature. That's no longer available. Uh, the, part of the meaning of the pressure of astrobiology on this stuff is that two sharp distinctions between humans and world and history and other things are probably not going to hold up, particularly in a theological frame of reference. Hmm. So I think that the work is fascinating and it's really important. Uh, it's going to be accessed in ways that reflect uh, the, the theological affirmations of the particular traditions that, that encounter it. Uh, but uh, it can be accessed in a number of different ways. It will push back in certain directions. It's not infinitely malleable, just sort of data or something out there. Uh, it, it does have its own uh, its own force in, in theological conversations. So we shouldn't be surprised if it turns out that in your and my time, uh, Theology and, and, and the question of the place of human beings in the world is going to push, among other things, uh, to get strong statements of how it is persons participate in and are related to wider interdependencies in a natural environment and world. There are other things that are going to be important, too, but that will be one of them, and astrobiology can help with that. Well, Doug, first, I just want to say congratulations. The book is A Theology for the 21st Century from Urban's Publishing. And as you say, you've been working on this for almost 20 years. And it's a it makes sense because it's a huge project and it takes a lot of time. So congratulations on the publication of this book. I hope it's read widely and discussed widely in the field and beyond the field of theology. And I think it will be. Uh, so thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Mm -hmm.